Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. The Centennial State is known for its diverse landscapes, from the snow-covered Rocky Mountain peaks towering above the high plains to the river canyons and deserts below. Colorado has much to offer for any outdoor enthusiast, but the state also offers up a variety of weather, and 2019 proved to be one for the record books. Today, we welcome in Dr. Russ Schumacher, the state climatologist and director of the Colorado Climate Center, and we're going to revisit some of those extreme events from 2019. We'll also get a preview of Russ's latest research endeavors at Colorado State University, And we'll end the episode with an interesting fact about him that may have you asking all kinds of questions. Russ, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's really neat. If I'm not uh, mistaken, you were also a guest on the television version of the Weather Geek show as well. So it's happy to have you back in the podcast iteration of the show. I was. It was. Uh, it was great to be on the show, and and great to to be part of this uh, this medium as well. Let's let's get to know Russ Schumacher. I always like to ask Weather Geeks podcast guests, how did you become a meteorologist? What was the spark? Yeah. So so I grew up in in Minnesota, and one of the the strongest memories I have uh, as a kid was this uh, uh, tornado that happened in in the Twin Cities area in 1986. I was a a young kid and, you know, there were only three TV stations uh, available at that time. And and so we all were watching the news and and in in, they had the news helicopter up to just to do the traffic kind of, you know, on a normal, normal weekday afternoon. And and then and then this tornado formed really nearby to the helicopter. And so there's this great helicopter video, still one of the best tornado videos, I think, that that I've ever seen until maybe some of these drone videos that people are taking now of just the, the fluid dynamics of the, the tornado going up and down and, and strengthening and weakening and, and, you know, all being live. And so the, the helicopter pilot and the, and the, uh, Paul Douglas, the TV meteorologist and everyone just sort of in shock at, at what was going on live on TV. And so that, that definitely, uh, got me really interested in, in the weather as a kid. And, and then, you know, the weather channel also came along, you know, was, was, uh, growing up right around that time as I was growing up. And so that was a, a big influence as well. And then decided to go on to study meteorology in college and, and then went on to grad school to, to do research. And, and so I get to do research and, and teaching and now, um, serve as the state climatologist and try and, and make sense of our, of our fascinating weather here in Colorado. 
And let me give you a little bit of Russ's background. He has a BS with majors in meteorology and humanities from Valparaiso University, a master's degree and a PhD in atmospheric sciences from Colorado State University. Uh, he was a professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at Texas A&M University from 20, 2009 to 2011 and then left to join the faculty at Colorado State University in August 2011. And that's where he is. He's also served as an editor of the journal Monthly Weather Review. He's the Colorado State Climatologist and Director of the Colorado Climate Center. And he has received a prestigious career award from the National Science Foundation. So we're talking with someone that really knows his stuff. Uh, he's a, uh, a a colleague that I've known for many years and have watched his career blo- blossom. So it's quite a treat to have Russ with us here on the Weather Geeks podcast. We're going to geek out on many things uh, on the show today. But before we do that, I want to kind of turn the page back a little bit and talk about some of your graduate re- uh, research. You focused on heavy rainfall and something called MCSs. First of all, tell the Weather Geeks listeners what MCSs are and how you got interested in, in them and severe convective storms in general. Yeah, so so MCSs are is the acronym for Mesoscale Convective Systems, and these are these these big organized areas of thunderstorms that that develop uh, in, in many different parts of the world, but but my research is mostly focused on here in the in the central U.S. And so they they uh, you know the storms form here in, in in the mountains in the afternoon on on a lot of afternoons, and and then uh, and then they kind of merge together and grow into these much larger systems that move out through the the central U.S. and you know are uh, responsible for all sorts of different hazards. But I focus mainly on the heavy rain fall aspect um, you know and so trying to understand why why some of these MCSs produce you know 8 or 10 or 12 inches of rain but but other ones in in otherwise somewhat similar conditions you know might move more quickly and only produce a swath of, of a half inch or an inch over a really broad area as opposed to getting these really localized uh, rain amounts and so that's been a focus of a lot of my work over time using observations, just, you know, routine observations from National Weather Service radars and and so on and so forth, and then numerical models to try and better understand these storms. And then now I'm trying to push forward uh, improvements in, in forecasts as well, in addition to the, to the uh, you know, trying to better understand just how these storms work. And I'm familiar with some of your work on the sort of rainfall aspects through uh, interactions with one of my former uh, graduate students, Amanda Schroeder, who's now at the National Weather Service. Tell us about some of the work that you've done in sort of flood risk. I know that you and your group and through an NSF project called Spread, I believe, were trying to develop and think about ways to improve warning of floods. I mean, perhaps even a flood index of some type. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So so how I met Amanda, um, and, and, and a broad variety of really, really sharp young students from around the country was, yeah, I organized this workshop back in, in, uh, 2013 over, over six years ago now, um, called, called spread. It was a, it was sort of a contrived acronym, but it was studies of, of precipitation, flooding and rainfall extremes across disciplines. And what we did was brought together, uh, graduate students from a whole variety of different backgrounds. And, and so floods are, you know, we, in our field in, in meteorology, atmospheric science, we focus on the weather and what's going on, you know, in the clouds and, and how the, the storms 
uh, come, come together to get all that rain to the ground. But then there's so many other aspects of, of uh, you know, different scientific disciplines that, that are relevant to floods. Obviously, we worry about what happens with the rain getting to the ground, but then what happens after it hits the ground, that's sort of the domain of hydrology and, and uh, trying to understand, you know, where that water is going to go. Um, how do, how do people respond to floods? How do they prepare for floods? Uh, you know, these are the domains of emergency management and, and a whole variety of social sciences. Uh, there's a, you know, very interesting history of, of floods in, in the U S and around the world. And we had a historian as part of our group. And so it was this great team of, of people with very different perspectives on, on this issue and trying to come up with different ideas to, uh, yeah, to, to try and summarize, uh, you know, what we know and, and maybe take a broader perspective of, of the flood issue. And, and you mentioned that index, one of the problems we have in, in flood research is that we don't even have a great definition of say what a flash flood is. Um, you know, I think we, we kind of know it when we see it, but we don't have a, even, even, you know, tornado, we have a, of the enhanced Fujita scale. We have scales for other types of hazards, but for flash floods, we don't really have that. We, we sort of proposed some ideas for how that might come about. Um, but, but it's still a, it's still a really tricky topic and, and kind of the answers you get in your research are very dependent on how you even define a flood and, and what you call it and, and, uh, and things like that. And so that's still a, still a challenge in our, in our field, I think. And yeah. I, I imagine you'd probably agree related to that, um, especially when it comes to things like urban flash flooding. Um, that's a huge issue that brings together so many different things beyond the just the rainfall. No, I complete, completely agree. We, we, when we hear tornado warnings or a hurricane watcher warning, people instantly perk up and pay attention. I, I, I think you would agree that people don't react the same way when we talk about extreme rain and flooding, even though we, it, it, in terms of National Weather Service statistics, at least, it uh, flooding is perhaps the second deadliest weather phenomenon in the U.S. each year. Yeah, that's right. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit, Russ, because recently, I guess in the last couple of years, you've become the Colorado state climatologist. Each state has a state climatologist. Uh, explain to the Weather Geeks listeners what a state climatologist does. Yeah, so that's a that's a question that that I get a lot, and I still don't have maybe the 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 quickest answer to that because it it involves a, a wide variety of different things, and it, and it does vary a, a good bit from from state to state, partly based on the weather and climate of those different areas, but also just in terms of of uh, you know support from from the state or from the university or, or whatever the case might be. Um, so, so just a, a, a smattering of the things that we do in our office, the Colorado Climate Center, uh, our state climate office. Um, so one thing that that I'm sure we'll be talking about here as we go along is is uh, keeping tabs of, of records, um, you know, partly like rec breaking records, but also just just weather and climate records in general for our, for our state. And making sure that, <clears throat> excuse me, making sure that, um, you know, we, we keep tabs on what's going on, you know, from day to day, week to week, and, and then trends over, over long periods of time. Um, so that's kind of a, a core thing that we do. Um, but another big uh, uh, task that we have in, in our office and that state climatologists generally are, are quite involved in uh, is drought monitoring. And so this was a, when I came into this position, this was kind of a big shift for me, right? Like I'm used to studying the, the other end of the extremes, looking at, at floods and heavy rainfall, um, and then switching to the total other extreme of, of drought, where it's a 
in general, a much, uh, uh, you know, longer term phenomenon looking at, at lack of rain and, and heat and things like this, um, over, you know, weeks and months as opposed to over time scales of hours. But it's a really fascinating area, I think, partly because, it's, it's similar to floods. It's challenging to define what drought is because it it it, it affects different uh, places in different ways. It affects a certain place differently at different times of year. Um, and so just kind of getting to learn more about that. And we've got a couple of drought experts in our office who help to inform the, the U.S. drought monitor. And so if people are familiar with those maps of, uh, you know, showing the drought intensity across the country, um, you know, each, each state or each region tends to provide input, uh, local input to that national scale map. Um, so that's another, another big, uh, thing that we're involved with, um, in our office. And then one unique, uh, program that we have in our office is uh, Kokoraz, the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network, which was founded by my predecessor in this position, Nolan Duskin, um, after we had a big flood here in Fort Collins in 1997. And, you know, it was where the there was 12 inches of rain on one side of town and less than an inch on the other side of town. And we had one gate, you know, one or two rain gauges sort of in the middle that didn't really represent that rain very well. And he realized, hey, if people just put these simple plastic rain gauges in their backyards and, and report the data in, we can we can really better characterize these these these, you know, rainfall, not only extreme rainfall, but just kind of more routine rain as well. And so that it started here in Fort Collins, expanded to Colorado now is is nationwide and and Canada and the Bahamas. Um, and so this is a, and it's a hugely valuable data set. And that was something I, you know, I'm like we were saying, I'm an extreme rainfall researcher, but I don't think I quite appreciated the quality of the data and the effort that these volunteers put in to go and measure their rain. You know, especially if you think of some of these situations in a in a hurricane where people are getting, you know, 20 to 30 inches of rain in a day and they're out there emptying their their gauge in their backyard, you know, a couple times to make sure they get an accurate measurement while their community is getting getting ravaged by a hurricane. So it's a really it's a really uh, cool thing to to have the opportunity to be in, involved with. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Russ Schumacher from Colorado State University. He has many titles. He's the, as you just heard in the last segment, the Colorado State climatologist, but he's also a meteorologist, an active professor and researcher, and we're going to dive into many aspects of what he does. And stay tuned on the podcast because there's something about Russ that you may not know, but some of you may know him, even though you don't think you know him. We'll reveal how that is later in the podcast. Russ, I want to pivot now to 2019 because for Colorado, it was a year of extremes. And so I want to just walk through some of those extremes and get your reactions. I know in January of 2019, you mentioned drought earlier. The, the 82% of the state was in drought. 11% was in extreme drought. Uh, how 
what was going on? What were sort of the weather conditions? I imagine there had to be some high pressure involved, but tell us a little bit about the how that drought evolved. Yeah, so we've definitely gone on on a pretty big roller coaster statewide over the last couple of years. So right at the beginning of 2019 and really extending back through back into the fall of 2017 or so. Um, yep, that big ridge of high pressure set up over the Southwest. And so it wasn't even just limited to Colorado, but it was, it was really centered kind of around that Four Corners region. Um, and that winter, the fall into the winter of 2017 into 2018 was extremely warm and dry and a, a, and a, and a historic lack of snowfall in many areas, um, in our mountains. And, and, you know, the, the snowpack is a huge part of our, of our drought situation in Colorado. That's our, that's really our, you know, we have, we have physical reservoirs of, to keep water in, but the snowpack is our, is our most important reservoir because that, uh, that snowpack that builds up over the course of a winter, then, you know, slowly melts off in the spring through the summer and, and then provides the, the water in the streams and the rivers and, and in the reservoirs for, for all the things we need water for across the West. Uh, and so that winter of 2017, 18 had very little snow in the, in the, especially in the Southern mountains of Colorado. And, and then it led into the summer of 2018 being incredibly hot and dry. And so really the Western half of the state and especially the Southwestern corner of the state, were in this, in this really exceptional drought situation where, um, there, you know, the, the water supplies were very stressed and it was causing a lot of impacts for, for agriculture and, and, and wild, you know, we had a big wildfire season that's that summer as well. And so then right at the beginning of this calendar year, 2019, we were still, uh, in that pretty serious drought situation from the, uh, you know, from the previous winter and summer. And then things just turned around in February and March, uh, where the mountains just start with we had atmospheric rivers coming in to the West Coast, bringing lots of moisture in, and and some of that moisture made it into to our mountains, and so the Southern Mountains, especially, but but really all of our mountains in Colorado just had a had a huge snow year last winter. You know, February and March, it was just relentless storm after storm after storm uh, piling up the snow, and so we ended up then with with, uh, you know, some of the same places that had record or near record low snowpack in, in the 2018 winter ended up with, with near record high snowpack one year later. So it was, it was quite a, quite a turnaround there. Yeah, quite a bit. And you mentioned atmospheric rivers. Uh, that's one of those terms that I just discussed this morning on AMHQ. We were talking about weather terms that people think are new, uh, but have been around for a while. And atmospheric rivers is certainly one from a meteorological perspective. It may be new to people that see it in social media or on the Weather Channel for the first time. But it's certainly been around. Another term that people think is new, but we've known about in meteorology for a while is bombogenesis or bomb cyclones. And in March, uh, I guess March 13th of 2019, Colorado recorded its all-time lowest pressure on record due to a winter storm, uh, and the pressure bottomed out at 970.4 millibars at Lamar, Colorado. Uh, so talk to us about that particular event and what bombogenesis is. Yeah, so that, I mean, it mainly refers to 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 how rapidly the pressure drops in a in a winter storm or an extra what we call an extra tropical cyclone that develops um, and so this process of of this ra- you know rapid deepening of a r- rapid lowering of the pressure rapid intensification of the 
extratropical cyclone um, really was was first studied, like you mentioned, you know, decades ago, back in the 70s, and mostly focused out over warm ocean currents, like off the east coast of, of North America, where they're pretty common occurrences. I mean, they're they're still impressive when they happen, but but you know, a couple times a year, it's it's not that unusual to to get one of these off, you know, off the east coast of of the US or the east coast of Canada there. Um but it is quite a bit less common for this to happen over the middle of a continent. And so that was was really what um what what set this storm apart, I think, in in March here was how how rapidly that storm intensified over eastern Colorado and and then moving out into the into the plains and so right we we ended up um, having our lowest pressure and that was that one pressure records are not quite as carefully kept as a lot of other you know variables like temperature or precipitation so we had to do a lot of digging back through the old records to to figure out if there was anything lower than that but but we weren't able to find anything in the in the past with, with pressure that low and so yeah the center of the storm really got going in in southern and southeast Colorado there it ended up being not that impressive in terms of snow totals but that that low pressure right when you have the pressure dropping that quickly and getting that low it's going to drive very very strong winds and so that was the, the the real big story on our eastern plains in that storm was was numerous locations set their their all-time wind gust record um during that storm and you know some places it was truly their all-time wind gust record other times it was the other places it was their record other than times when it had been sort of directly hit by a thunderstorm in the summer so it's pretty unusual to have a have a, a you know winter storm being the the windiest type of storm but but in in many of these areas uh the, there were huge impacts on on of course travel you know when you have a blizzard situation with with heavy snow and then you know these 50 60 70 mile an hour winds persisting for hours uh it's a pretty bad situation and also had had uh some significant impacts in the you know agricultural parts of the state as well with um you know with where uh, ranches and and things like that uh, not a good situation for for cattle either when you when you have those sorts of conditions so that was a that was a pretty intense storm and so right we you know we geek out on on that sort of stuff um with the both with the terms like bomb cyclone and and trying to confirm those those sorts of pressure records but also the the big impacts that a storm like that can have uh you know both from everywhere from the urban areas out to the to the agricultural areas on the eastern plains we're talking with Dr. Russ Schumacher from Colorado State University and about all things weather and the extreme 2019 that the state had in terms of weather. Uh, moving from March into May, you had some pretty late season snow, uh, largest late season May snowfall in 44 years, I understand. What 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 happened there? Yeah, and and this has been sort of a, a, a strange, I don't know if we want, if we can really call it a trend, but it's been a thing that's happened, you know, several times in the last, uh, uh, you know, decade or so. I mean, historically we've had, had a few big snowstorms in May in the past. Um, but in the last decade or so, they seem to be coming just about every year and, and under trying to figure out why, why that, uh, is happening is a little bit, a little bit tricky, but right. And, you know, a big trough of low pressure coming in to the Western U S and brought very, very cold for May, 
air into the west and and you know big amplified pattern with a big trough in the west and a big ridge of high pressure in the east um and so yeah we ended up with with some heavy snow in may and 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 even persisting into june there was a storm in the middle of june in the mountains where um like steamboat springs had their latest their latest measurable snowfall in town on record and i think it was june 21st or 22nd um and so we had you know, we, it, it, yeah. So we went from extreme drought to then huge snowpack in, uh, in, in, uh, in last winter, you know, January and, and really continuing through May and June was, was very, very cool and, and wet and snowy, um, really through almost through the end of June. Yeah, it was crazy. I, I remember sort of listening to that, Russ, and I, I was actually just looking because the, the latest episode of Weather Geeks just hit the streets there. And keep in mind, as you uh, share about Weather Geeks to your uh, to your friends and family, uh, those of you that are listening, uh, new episodes come out every Wednesday. And so as I'm talking with Russ Schumacher, we have an interesting uh, one that just came out. It caught my attention because we do such interesting topics here. Uh, as we're taping this, a new episode on how the loop current affects weather just came out. And that's one I think our Weather Geeks fans are going to really like. And uh, Russ Schumacher is one of the best in the biz. I, I want to just stop and brag on Russ for a second because he's just one of the most promising. Well, he's, I don't even know if you're early career anymore, but when I first met you and became aware of you and my colleague John Knox was actually had shared about you as well. He's just one of the most outstanding scientists in our field uh, doing some really uh, interesting things. So. Really an honor to have you here joining us uh, talking about these extreme events. I want to now pivot a little bit to the snowpack. And you have alluded to this a little bit already, Russ. Um, some por portions of Colorado in uh, in that event and others, uh, I guess, had 500% of average snowpack cover. Uh, 2018 and 2019 season snowpack was so large, I guess some ski resorts were able to stay open into late July or into July. Is, is that normal? Is that weird? It's it's pretty unusual. It's you know it it happens every now and then, and of course the ski resorts try to use that as sort of a a badge of honor of who can who can open the earliest in the fall. And there was a big uh, you know battle for that uh, this fall, um, and then who can stay open the latest in the into the summer. And so it's usually Arapaho Basin, which is which is at very high elevation, um, up above ten and eleven thousand feet, and they're able to stay open. Uh, you know, usually they're able to stay open at least through Memorial Day, um, if not into June. But but even for them, staying open into July this year was pretty unusual because that that snow. Uh, persisted, um, but yeah, these these percent of average numbers we that's that's usually our our sort of metric of of uh, interest that we pay attention to when it comes to snowpack. But when you get into the spring and summer, those numbers can can start to get a little bit misleading too, because you know your your average snowpack in in early June might be you know a half an inch at a lot of these locations or something like that, and so that means if you have if you still have six or eight inches on the ground, you're now at, at, you know, 2000% of average. And it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's meaningful in a way, but, but also, you know, those numbers can get a little bit, uh, can get a little bit misleading too. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, geeking out with Dr. Russ Schumacher on the extreme weather roller coaster in Colorado in 2019. And there's some fascinating sort of weather tidbits and geek outs along the way. So I hope you're enjoying this fascinating episode. As we were talking about that latest, largest late May snowfall, uh, one of the points that I wanted to emphasize is that as that was occurring in Colorado, uh, much of the East was experiencing an early season heat wave as well. So rest Talk to us just as a meteorology professor, if you're at Colorado State or Valpo or UGA and you're explaining how one part of the country could be in a heat wave and one part of the country is sort of experiencing extreme snowfall, um, what are the basics from a meteorological perspective going on there? Yeah, so I mean, this it really uh, all comes down to to where the jet stream is and how it's oriented. The, the jet stream is kind of at least at a in a in a simple uh, way of thinking about it, the dividing line between the jet stream at upper levels, so the winds up at you know where where jets fly, um, is is then related to to. The kind of the dividing line between where the cold air is uh, to the to the north toward the pole and where the warm air is to the to the south toward the equator. And so when you get these big high uh, high amplitude patterns, so you have a deep trough of low pressure, the jet stream dips way down to the south in one area. You you pretty much have to then have another area where it, it, the jet stream is 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 uh, you know building up to the north and bringing very warm air up on the on the east side of that. So you've got very cold air within that trough of low pressure to the west, and then very very warm air in, within that ridge of high pressure to the east. And so this is you know somewhat common situation here in the U.S., right, and in, in most mid-latitude locations where you'll get these these uh, deep troughs and you'll have a have a, a region of, of cold air and a region of warm air. And, and it's all tied together, too, because here in Colorado, I think something that, that people have a hard time uh, understanding, even though even though we, we all experience it, in the, especially in the fall and in the spring, you know, where you'll have a day where it's it's 75 degrees or something like that and then a day later that cold front comes through and it's 20 degrees and snowing um and that is is sort of how it almost how it has to work right this is this is how that how that jet stream builds so as the the air comes in 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 our case over the mountains there's a a, a trough of low pressure lee trough that forms east of the mountains that really warms things up in advance of the the upper level trough coming in and so we get you know a warm day of, of 70 75 80 degrees something like that and then that upper level trough swings through the surface cold front comes down and all of a sudden we're snowing um and so you know this happens in in lots of places but i think here in colorado with our our, our uh, location with the mountains to the west, right, it, immediately adjacent to the plains, we get some of the, the most extreme changes from one day to the next. And it's one of those things that we all, uh, you know, love to love to study and, and talk about around here with these these dramatic uh, changes from one day to the next. Speaking of changes, we were talking about 
extreme cold and snowy conditions. But in July, I think around July 20th, uh, Colorado recorded its hottest temperature on record at John Martin Dam near Lamar, Colorado. The temperature got up to 115 degrees. So this shatters the myth that it doesn't get really hot in, Cal- in Colorado, right? <laughs> right. And that that's our hottest part of the state there in southeastern Colorado in the Arkansas River Valley. So it's, a, it's lower elevation there, at least relatively, you know, it's in the more in the like 3,500 to 4,000 feet elevation. And so it does tend to, to, to get very hot in that river Valley, um, in, in Southeast Colorado. And yeah, we, you know, we, we shifted from this cool, wet, uh, spring in, in, into early summer. And then, and then the switch really flipped and, and we ended up with a extremely hot and dry summer, um, at, uh, following that. So, you know, part of that was this, this temperature record in in uh, in July, and it, it, it that was a, a you know one of the the sort of new and interesting processes that I got to be involved with, with the fir- for the first time uh, as the state climatologist, trying to go through the process of of investigating this measurement and figuring out whether it was real, whether it was legitimate, whether it should be accepted. Uh, as a new record. Um, there were various uh, uh, sort of complications with this particular measurement because it was taken on a on an older thermograph um, where the, there's a little pen that, that marks the temperature on the piece of paper as the temperature goes up and down. Um, and, but the, the, the chart that's in there only went up to 110 Fahrenheit. And so the observers looked at it and it was well above that 110. And they Several of the trained observers looked at it and decided that it was 115, but we weren't sure whether that instrument, that thermometer actually worked well at those high temperatures. And so we then got the instrument from the National Weather Service and did some tests in a, in a lab oven here at CSU just to, you know, figure out whether that, that sort of thermometer actually works at those high temperatures. And so there were a lot of these, these sort of, uh, complicated things with that record. And we did end up deciding, uh, we convened a committee as we do with, with these sorts of records, including not just us in Colorado, but, but NOAA officials and others, and, and did end up deciding to, to confirm that 115 Fahrenheit as a, as a new record for the state. The old record had been 114. So it was, you know, only, only beating the old record by one degree. And and not to sort of uh, sound like a broken record, you broke another type of record in August in Bethune, Colorado. Uh, you saw a hailstone measuring 4.83 inches. That's a pretty large hailstone. I mean, as, as, as listeners may recall, Colorado in August of 2018, there was a major hailstorm in Colorado Springs that uh, injured several people. I think two uh, zoo animals were killed by softball-sized hail. This region is prone to hail, right? Russ, why, why, first yeah. of all, tell us why it is prone to hail and what was your reaction to this 4.83 inch hailstone? Yeah, we, we here in, you know, sort of the western high plains, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and then and then over into eastern Colorado is definitely a, a hot spot for hailstorms. Uh, I think it's kind of the combination of we, we do get that moisture and instability, you know, for very uh, strong instability for for thunderstorm for for intense thunderstorms to form um, in in this part of the country, uh, and then at the same time the it it tends to be a little bit drier near the surface, and so that tends to be good for the hail to to fall and not melt as it as it's falling, and the freezing level is is maybe. Uh, such that that it's uh, you know the the hail again isn't melting or or 
sublimating as it as it falls toward the ground. Um, and and then you know in for example that Colorado Springs case, and there was another case a year earlier in 2017 in the Denver suburbs where you're you're sort of overlapping this threat for really big hail with uh you know a big population center and where a lot of people live and where the the population is growing rapidly and people are building in new areas and so we saw a ton of damage over over the really over the last 3 years in in parts of Colorado from from these hailstorms and people are really i think concerned about you know, as as you might imagine, of of damage to to their vehicles and their roofs and and so on from from these and and trying to account for for those costs. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think you know I, one of the things when I teach about hail. Uh, in my introductory classes at the University of Georgia, I talk about this particular region and some of the sort of meteorological regions you just alluded to. And I often show pictures of cars on a car lot damaged by hail. And so if you're looking for a cheap car, sometimes these dealers have hail sales uh, because of the damages there. Now, as we get a little closer to we're we're taping this in early December, uh, this episode of Weather Geeks. And Colorado has seen a couple of Arctic blasts this fall. I mean, I, I know that we've been talking about some fairly cold temperatures, sort of record temperatures, teens and single digits. From your perspective, how unusual is that? Or is it just the transition to winter? Yeah, it's 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 mostly our transition to winter here in, in Colorado. But it, but it was particularly uh, extreme this year, just in, in how abruptly it happened. September was our, our hottest September on record for Colorado and, and really for much of the United States, much of the United States, uh, especially the Southern tier of States saw record hot conditions in September. And then October ended up being our fourth coldest October on record. So we really had this whiplash between, between these, you know, extreme heat in September going into, pretty quickly into a, in a really intense cold front that came through, uh, in October and a couple snowstorms there. And then we had a big snowstorm, uh, last week here along the front range. Uh, we had 16 and a half inches here in Fort Collins. Some areas up in the foothills had, had like three feet of snow. Um, and so again, November snowstorms are pretty common in this part of the country, but this is the biggest one we've had in, in this time of year in, in, you know, a couple decades. So it, it, it certainly, and it came in the, in the busy, uh, Thanksgiving travel week. And so it was, it was notable for, for that, uh, for that reason. And, and I think now everybody's kind of okay with having a few days of, of, uh, more mild weather. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're closing out the year, heading into 2020. Um, you want to put on your sort of projection glasses and, and any things that catch your eye going into 2020 weather or climate wise? I don't know. We, we've, we've had, uh, we've gone from, from one extreme to the other, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, back and forth a couple of times. And, and so, I don't know. I I'd, I'd personally, I'd be okay with having a year that's just a little bit more average. But <laughs> but on the other hand, in what in our business, right? What we do, we like to have those extremes that that are that are interesting to try and understand and study and and hopefully predict reasonably well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I want to shift gears a little bit as we've kind of marched through that, as I said earlier, roller coaster of weather. Just to, you've been involved in some pretty interesting research, and I wanted to give you a chance, a few minutes to highlight some of those. I know you've been participating in the Vortex Southeast uh, experiment, which is looking at occurrence of tornadoes and flooding in the Southeast. Uh, you were involved in the Relampago uh, experiment down in South America, and we had Karen Kasiba and Chris, Kristen Rasmussen on talking about their roles in, the, in that project. 
uh, you've got some intelligent post-processing of convection model work going on for flood outlook and forecast. Um, yeah, it, which one of these excites you the most? Or are they equally exciting? Well, they're they're definitely all exciting in their in their own ways. You know, it's it's uh, it's really fun and exciting and challenging to do these field projects. Um, we, you know, we've done a couple over the, over the last few years and, and right. Mostly recently Rilampago in Argentina. And that was, that was exciting because it was an area that just hadn't, we knew there were really intense storms there, but it hadn't been studied very much and there just wasn't much data. And so we, I think kind of went into that project, uh, you know, figuring that we were probably going to observe some things that had, that had never been observed or at least not carefully observed before. And so we're really starting to dig into that data now that we collected there in, in that part of the world and, and trying to make sense of it and figure out how it compares to, to, you know, the, the more heavily observed areas like, like our central plains of the U S for example. Um, but yeah, the, the work that we're doing with the NOAA Weather Prediction Center is also really exciting because this is, uh, uh, you know, working directly with forecasters and trying to develop uh, tools that the forecasters can use. And then we get feedback from them to, to you know, fix issues that they see or, or make improvements as, as it goes. And so what we're doing is taking so the, the WPC. Uh, generates every day what's called an excessive rainfall outlook. And so these are, it's, it's the analog to the Storm Prediction Center uh, convective outlook uh, that, that everyone is, you know, in our field, it looks at all the time for the outlook for thunderstorms, but the WPC issues this outlook for excessive rainfall. Um, but again, as we mentioned earlier, like, how do we even define excessive rainfall is, is, is the, the first level of challenge here. And so what, we were, what we're doing is taking past forecasts and past observations um, and 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 feeding that information into machine learning algorithms to try and generate a, a you know a probabilistic forecast of, of heavy rain across the country that then the the for, the human forecasters at WPC can use to to start their process and just give them a, an initial uh, starting point to to make their to make their forecasts and so it's a it, I think it's a it's a good combination of using these advanced uh, uh, algorithms and and technical tools and data that we have um, with the expertise of the forecasters there to to try and you know better better represent the the likelihood for heavy rain and so it's it's you know intimidating to put something that you made in front of expert forecasters and and uh, and and have them you know kind of tear it apart but but they've also been very receptive and very uh, open in in kind of going back and forth with us to improve it because they see it as a really helpful tool um and and especially if if we can continue to make it better yeah that, and this really i think both projects that you just heard russ talk about just talk about the importance of research and development that goes on within the meteorological community you know these models and improved forecasts and uh, lives and properties saved if you will from these forecasts don't just poof come out of, uh, of thin air uh it comes from research like what you just heard described now, I've hinted at and teased this all show. One last thing that I wanted to share about Dr. Russ Schumacher, he's not only a champion in the weather community, he's also a former and very successful champion on the game show Jeopardy. So many of you listening to or that watch the show Jeopardy undoubtedly know Russ because he was on for quite a while. He was the 2014 Battle of the Decade semifinalist. I think he won $25,000 as a part of that. 
the 2005 Ultimate Tournament of Champions Round 1. He was also in the 2004 Tournament of Champions winner uh, uh, where he won over $250,000. Season 20, he was the four-time champion. So not only does Russ know his stuff in meteorology, he just knows his stuff in general because Jeopardy is one of those where you better have a wide-ranging sort of sense of knowledge of all topics. So, Russ, I want to thank you once again. I knew you'd be awesome for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast today. Hey, can anybody find you on social media or on the Internet? Yep, that's, uh, yeah, Twitter, Russ underscore Schumacher, or our uh, Colorado Climate Center account, if you're interested in kind of Colorado fun weather and climate facts, uh, is, is another, we, we like to post those there on, on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so those are good places to, to check out if you're interested in the, in the latest in our, in our crazy weather here in Colorado. Absolutely. And so I want to thank you once again for joining us. And now it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Randy Bowers, a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma. His favorite type of weather is severe weather. He's in Oklahoma, and there's plenty of that to go around. His passion for weather shows in the way he constantly evaluates the atmosphere, and a National Weather Service colleague labeled him as one of the smartest in his analysis. If you want to follow along with Randy's stats and analysis, you can find him on Twitter at Dry Adiabat, D-R-Y-A-D-I-A-B-A-T. And if you would like to nominate someone as a deserving candidate for the next Geek of the Week, be sure to check out our social media pages on Twitter and Facebook. Russ, thank you again for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks so much for having me and, uh, and for all of your kind words over the course of the podcast. Oh, absolutely. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you on the next episode of Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.